Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to another edition of Corner Kick. It seems like it's been a long time. Um, I think it's only been, what, a little bit more than a week, but it's been a long sort of 10 days since we have been back together. Uh, I am joined by a man who did not lose 2-1 in the biggest game of the season. It's Caleb Rhodes. I mean, technically as a fan, he did lose. Yeah, I was about to say. like biggest game of the season. Yeah, so oh, hello, yeah, Nick you know Gavindin. <laughs> yeah, you make a good point. I guess we can just do it. We can do it Nick, in the reverse. Nick, Nick lost 3-1. <laughs> I mean, but, that... he won, but then he won, but then he won 2-1 at the weekend. That's true. On a screamer. On a screamer from Gareth Southgate's most hated man, Trent Alexander Arnold. Yes. England's managers hate him. To learn this um, one simple trick. <laughs> and you too can set records for giving the ball away each yeah. successive game week. But Anyways, joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nick Vinden. Hello. I will not accept this Trent Alexander-Arnold slander so early on today's podcast, but that is probably a discussion for another time. Fair enough. Let's start off. Let's talk about the biggest game of the week that we alluded to a little bit there. Barcelona versus Real Madrid. And pretty much from minute one, I got the sense of how this game was going to go. Caleb, I'm curious if you kind of like had that intuition as well that this was just going to be one of those days for Madrid. I want to start, hold on. I, I don't okay. want to jump okay. the line here, but yeah, go. I, so obviously Liverpool played Madrid before this game uh, last week. And I think after I already thought that Madrid were probably going to roll up and win this Clasico as is become tradition. Barcelona are in a decent run of form. Uh, Madrid are just kind of cobbling together results. Madrid come into the Clasico And they just find a way to win the game. And this was no different. So obviously they found a way to beat Liverpool in midweek. They absolutely outclassed them at times. Tony Kroos has been on an absolute tear of form recently. Looks like the best midfielder in the world again. Karim Benzema obviously has had a historic season from his perspective. uh, Finally getting the recognition he deserves as one of the greatest strikers in the game. I have to say I was not surprised by this result. I think frequently on this podcast, I've said that Barcelona, even when they are in a good run of form, and they had only lost one game in 2021, so they had been on a spectacular run of form, quite frankly. I think whenever they have to face up to some adversity, they frequently crumble. And Madrid just have so many serial winners and a manager in Zidane who knows how to get the best out of them in big spots at this point just becomes so second nature to them that I knew exactly what was going to happen in this game. Uh, Barcelona were going to be left feeling sucker punched and Caleb certainly felt sucker punched following that Benzema back heel. This game, I think, as Nick said, ended up being very predictable in that Madrid just always went. Form does not matter for them. Also worth mentioning that after the international break, the sort of three five two three four three you know formation um, looked a little shaky against Valladolid last week, and it required you know a kind of spectacular late game volley from Dembélé to get us the win there. So I don't think 
we were necessarily in like the best form in the near term, even though our form in 2021 has been quite good. I mean, if you look at the stats, it seems like a game that in theory, Barcelona perhaps would have dominated. Like we outshot them. We had like 70 to 30 possession. We outpassed them. We had more dribbles. Um, however, Madrid had like just a really good game plan. I think bringing in Valverde for Asensio, who himself was in good form, turned out to be a pretty inspired move um, by Zidane. And it was just the Madrid counterattack. When you have a player as fast as Vinicius and passers as lethal as Tony Kroos and Luka Modric and someone like Valverde that can just cruise through the midfield and just power his way forward, they just sliced and diced this team apart. At the same time, it could have been really, really close to a draw if Mariba hadn't crashed the ball off the post or off the crossbar in the last minute of the game. So Madrid deserved to win. I think it was another example of Barcelona just not being able to get it done when it counts. I'm a little disappointed, but La Liga is still wide open and we have the Copa del Rey coming up this weekend. And so the season is not quite lost yet, but I think this was definitely a you know, humbling defeat. Right. I think that Mariba goal is going to become a broad analogy for how close this La Liga season has ended up becoming. And look at the table right now. It is so bunched up there at the top. Atletico Madrid holding on to a one-point lead. They look like they're truly crumbling. I don't know if you guys saw any of the footage from uh, their 1-1 draw against Betis, but Simeone was like, falling all over the he was like peak Simeone he was like peak you know like Paul Heyman <laughs> whenever Brock Lesnar gets hit with a big move he was like falling all over himself it was super dramatic so I think there's a lot of turmoil in and around Atleti right now and I think you know Barcelona obviously suffering a defeat in Real looking like they've reinvented the wheel somewhat once again to become a, a experienced counter-attacking side in these past two big games but yeah Nathan I'm interested to hear what you think about this yeah, I mean, Atleti have done Barcelona no favors uh, in the last couple of months. And I think part of the reason that we've seen their form drop off is because, I think, Nick, you sent this in the chat, but they've been having COVID issues. And they also had one of the smallest, maybe the smallest They have squad. the fewest players in their first team squad in La Liga. Right. And so you look at their, even just going back to, to Sunday in their game against Betis, they only had six field players on the bench, one of whom is a uh, 20 year old Sergio Camello who's only made what 10 first team appearances. It's it, I feel a little bad for them because I think this season, if they don't hold on could very well go down as a, a big, what if for them. Um, but specifically going back to Barcelona for the entirety of this year, we've kind of been saying like, Oh, you know, Madrid are going to live and die by the performances of their aging players. We've sort of been skeptical that Benzema it was going to be able to sort of carry the load, you know, as a 33-year-old. But he just hasn't slowed down at all. Um, and I sort of kept waiting for him to hit that cliff, but he just clearly hasn't and might not be going to um, this year. You know, 19 goals, six assists on the year. He's just as creative and, and a real powerhouse of a striker. I mean, I think he's been one of the three best forwards in Europe this year. And I'm surprised because I thought that players like him – Players like Modric, who I thought played really well, those players have done exactly what they've needed to uh, this year, and particularly in the last couple of weeks. So 
very, very pleased. And this game really also did have everything. Shouts for penalties. It had Casemiro committing two fouls within the span of like 45 seconds. Monsoon To get rain. sent off at the death. Yeah, it literally was like being played in Noah's Ark conditions on the Alfredo Di, Stefano, Di Stefano. So as far as Klaus Zidane goes, had to towel oh, himself off. Oh my off. God. Zidane okay. toweling himself off was like perfect gift material right the, there on the, the sideline. The wetness saga was like <laughs> well, my definitely favorite. avoid calling it that. The Zidane, no, the Zidane wetness saga. That's what it's going to be called. Is hashtag moist Zidane. Hashtag mm. moist Zidane. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that might be a sub bridge too far. Um, but that, like, Hashtag moist is on us. <laughs> but that, that saga was like my favorite little sidebar from this game. Cause at first he was fine. He was like, okay, I'm just like a little damp. It's all good. Like, cause he's wearing like, you know, a nice overcoat. He's wearing a nice suit. You know, Zidane always looks very well put together. And then like the rain comes down and he's still standing out there. And you can tell that he's like really phased. By the fact that like the rain is just like brushing into his face and he's super wet. And obviously, like he's bald, so he's gonna look super shiny at the same time. And he's just like standing there stoically. And you can tell he's like trying to look for the cameras, like he's not phased by like the rain and how uncomfortable he is. And then at some point he gives in and they cut back to him and he's got like two huge towels. <laughs> just like wiping everything down. <laughs> and then the towels, the towels are just like so, so wet. And then there's the guy next to him. Just has to keep, they just have to keep like handing him towels because he's got like no hair to absorb the water. I don't know why I found this so funny. See, this is funny because normally this is the type of thing where like I would be the one breaking down from some random thing like this. It's not that often that we see Nick just completely, <laughs> completely destroyed I'm on the show. I'm really sorry. I just thought this was the funniest thing. Meanwhile, like this problem could have been solved for him if he just like stepped under the like lip of the cover of the bench. Or like, just like grabbed an umbrella. Like it's... no, that was the funniest part. Was that like he just refused to like acknowledge the weather conditions? <laughs> Instead, his solution was to like plow through and have like some poor guy come bring him towels every five minutes. Yes, Zidane got wet, and that was the highlight for Nick for much of this game, focusing on the important things. But nonetheless, eight match weeks to go in La Liga, two points separating uh, Atleti in first and Barcelona in third, and then. If Sevilla can maybe pull off the win, they're tied 3-3 still. No, nope, 4-3. Um, Sevilla... Oh, they're up. are they up now? They're up now, yeah. Okay, so Sevilla, they're six points back, so probably too far back to make a serious run at it. Definitely a, a very, very close title race and some, some big games on the horizon. And you have to think that Barcelona might have... Well, I guess Barcelona and Atleti might have a slight edge on Real Madrid given the, the lack of Champions League games um, for those two clubs. Dude, what if Sevilla won La Liga? I'm kind of here for that. I wouldn't. I don't mind know. It. Oh, they I think still they play just... Real Madrid on May 9th. That could be the game. That could be the game. I'm not. I'm not convinced that they can be consistent enough. You know, in back to back games, there's something about like they're they're they conceded three goals to Celta Vigo today. Like to me, that does not bode well for their La Liga bona fides. But I mean, they could. Lapatuhui is, is a decent manager. He's shown that he can win trophies with Sevilla last season in the Europa League. And clearly, you know, 
they're a team that in the clutch moments can deliver. I just don't know if they're as clutch as Real Madrid this season. I mean, no one's ever as clutch as Real Madrid when it comes to to clutchness, Nick, as you experienced last week. We could actually, if you guys want, we could just go over the Champions League games from last week. Oh, you know, we have, you know, what? actually, I lied. We have to talk about Bayern PSG. Um, and I just declare that by fiat because that game. I refuse. <laughs> I, I will. Should we, should we table a vote? So, yeah, so Champions League. <laughs> nice transition to the Champions League. Um, so we have Man City beating Dortmund 2-1. And this game probably shouldn't have finished 2-1. Um, and I mean that quite literally. Uh, Dortmund thought they had scored when Jude Bellingham capitalized on a, on a loose pass uh, to score, only to then have the goal chalked off due to an early whistle, um, despite all video replays showing that Bellingham actually won the ball and did not actually touch Ederson. And I think that tarnished what was otherwise a pretty solid game. All in all, I think City bossed it as they were expected to. Again, some late game magic made it a manageable tie for Dortmund in the second leg, um, seeing as they did get their away goal. I'm curious what you guys thought of the the VAR or the just the missed call in general, because I think it's one of, if not the most consequential failing um, in the Champions League this year. Yeah, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, like, I, I just don't understand. It was one of those things where everyone was like, wait, why can't VAR, why can't VAR review this? And I guess the reason was because the whistle had already been blown and the foul was outside the box and they just don't normally review that. But I think it's another example of like, if you have the technology to, in theory, review the game, then absolutely in any type of goal scoring situation, you should be able to review that call. And I think it just gets back to just how kind of like random and arbitrary VAR's application seems to be. At the same time, it's not like Dortmund's really deserved to win this game. I mean, City, I think, dominated pretty much from beginning to end. But I think we do have the question of what if um, that will hang over this game. But I don't think that it would have made much of a difference in the tie overall. I still expect City to kind of comfortably, you know, do their job. You are? I'm not as confident in the similar way as to Barcelona being a little stagnant coming out of the international break. I think City have been a little vulnerable coming back from the international break too. I think they've shown a little little signs of tiredness here and there. I think most evidently this weekend when they lost 2-1 at home to 10-man leads. And I think leads, for the most part, just ran over them for large portions of the game and, and were just keeping them busy and forcing them into errors. And I think you're going to have that with the Marcelo Bielsa team and maybe less so with Bruce Dortmund. But I think Dortmund also pushed them to the limit at certain points in this tie. And it'll be interesting to see because Erling Holland has yet to arrive, really, in this quarterfinal matchup. And I think Jude Bellingham is proving to be quite a handful for the City midfield to track. So I'm, I'm interested to see how this second leg goes. I think Dortmund can honestly get a result because I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, I could be sitting here saying this and then City just blow, blow them over 3-0 in the away leg for them. But I, I'm interested to see where this goes. I think we could be in the process of, you know, seeing not, not a city collapse, but perhaps just a little regression 
from the side that was so dominant from December through March. I mean, I think the difference, though, is in the past, you know, City were very close to drawing this game 1-1, which would have set them up, you know, kind of on the edge for the second leg. But in this game, we saw Phil Foden get a winner in the 90th minute, and that's not something we've seen for Manchester City in the past few years in the Champions mm-hmm. League. And this is while they played a lineup I don't think we've ever seen City play before. And while they left Jesus, Sterling, Aguero, Ferran Torres, Fernandinho, like Imeric Laporte, like so many players on the bench. And so I, I don't know. I think this City team has more of a ability to get things done than past teams and they have more options than ever yeah i still think i still think they go through in the second leg but also on that tuesday we had real madrid three liverpool one i'm not sure exactly where liverpool went wrong i'm not sure if it was i could tell you a fitness thing if it was the the defensive or the, the lack of a high line yeah like, there's what, that what, Okay, yeah, Nick, why don't you (laughs) then why don't you take it away? (laughs) So Liverpool once again played their high line in this game and it got absolutely taken apart by Tony Kroos and Luka Modric and Vinicius. Um, I think that wasn't obviously the only issue in this game. Klopp made the bold choice to start Nabi Keita, which I actually thought could have been a positive move. Nabi Keita is good at keeping the ball. He's good at dribbling. He's good at slaloming his way through the midfield. Turned out to not be the case. Nabi Keita was not prepared for this tie at all. Uh, Tiago was brought in in the 30th minute when Liverpool were 2-0 down. And I think just in general, the first half for Liverpool was frankly unacceptable. And it was far below the standards that we've seen from Liverpool, not even, you know, in the past two seasons, but just this season alone, like in the past few weeks, it was below the standards that we've seen uh, for Liverpool. I thought they played so poorly in that first half. The second half was a bit better. Obviously, getting the away goal, it could be crucial, set them up really nicely for uh, potentially trying to mount a comeback at Anfield. But I think, you know, not to be super repetitive about Real Madrid, they are just a different animal in big games, particularly big games in the Champions League. So many of their players have been in this same position time and time again. Obviously, Liverpool are also experienced in the Champions League, but in no way as experienced as this Madrid team. So I think, you know, they'll see it out at Anfield. I think Liverpool could win or get a draw, but I certainly don't think they have enough in the tank to undo their mistakes from, you know, really getting exposed on on Tuesday. I think I'm not I'm not super worried about, you know, the outcome of this game. I think it's going to be a big blow if they're not in the Champions League. But I think these are con- like the high line and, and the player personnel and the mistakes because of those things. I think these are things that obviously Liverpool know about because as it came out this past week, Liverpool are close to signing Ibrahima Kanate from RB Leipzig. So and they're also, you know, scouting around for a forward and obviously midfielders to replace Jorginho Wijnaldum. So I think these things are all things that Klopp and his team know and they're looking to address in the transfer market and otherwise. So I'm not super concerned about you know going out of this tie because I think Liverpool have plans in place to rectify things for next season when they have a fully fit squad. The thing that the thing that scared me though about this game, like I I, I mean I predicted that Liverpool would lose. I didn't think it would be three one, but I just have learned never to count Madrid out in Champions League games. What scared me about this game, though, is there was a moment as Tony Kroos was 
just raining hellfire on Ozan Kabak and Nat Phillips and Trent Alexander and like everyone. Everyone was just, I was like, oh my God, Madrid are going to win the Champions League again. It's very possible. We had this discussion with uh, Bill Gallagher, who, uh, you know, frequent guest on this show, who is a Chelsea supporter. And, you know, Chelsea are obviously 2-0 up against Porto in their tie. And I, I, you know, even for as good as Chelsea have been under Tuchel, I don't know if they, you know, they have the experience to get past Real Madrid in a Champions League semifinal or, you know, that clutch factor that is needed sometimes in a Champions League semifinal. Tuchel has obviously been there. I think there's a lot of players in that Chelsea team who have not been there. And I just think Madrid, if they get to the semifinal, just plot the course. You know, book the ticket to Istanbul like it's <laughs> well, done. Also, but but then also at that point, then you wind up with, you know, Man City versus Real Madrid in the Champions League final. I don't want to watch that. Like, who am I supposed to root for in that game? So Manchester City. No, absolutely uh, not. No, I'm rooting for Real Madrid. You kidding me? Yeah, I. Oh no, I have no. Oh, I, I would See, it'd be to... so tough. I think you're right. I think I think that result was like, oh shit. Like, we're in, like, the end game of the Champions League. It did feel like in that first half, you're, like, that scene in an Avengers endgame where Thanos just tells, like, his, <laughs> tells his, like, ship to, like, fire down on the <laughs> battlefield. That is, like, kind of what it felt like going up against Tony Kroos and Modric playing those long balls in that game. And I think there is definitely, you know, certainly with the Clasico win, there is an aura about this Real Madrid team where I think we thought it was very much like a patchwork side for most of the season. But if there's a manager who knows how to get the most out of a patchwork team, just by you know pure motivational tactics alone, it's Zinedine Zidane. So I I would agree. And so this this there is like if they get through this week, I think they're probably favorites for the to make the final. Chelsea won two 0 I don't think we need to talk too much about that. I think that one went pretty much to chalk. Um, but I think the real the real is that a phrase. Yeah. Yeah. To chalk. Yeah, like like in in March Madness, like if the favored team wins, Google but I it. think, yeah, that's right. No, I think the real marquee matchup of the week uh, was PSG versus Lewandowski-less Bayern Munich, and I think it lived up to expectations no matter what way you look at it. Yeah, I'll let Caleb go first, and then I'll tell my experience about watching this game. <laughs> Caleb already knows. This this game was this game was everything we wanted this game to be. Which is, this is the glamour tie. This was the rematch of the final from last year. This game was, you know, missing Robert Lewandowski. And so all of us wondered, can Eric Maxime Choupo-Moting play like a Bayern Munich player or more like a Stoke player? It was somewhere <laughs> in between in this game. It, it, was, it was somewhere, somewhere between. between. But like, I mean, honestly, that's fair. That's fair. But wow. I mean, seeing Neymar is just a quality player. Mbappe next level but really this game reminded me a lot of the chelsea Bayern ucl final was that 2012 okay where Bayern were just like obliterating and just absolutely peppering the goal with shots but could not find a way through kaylor navas and yet it was just these few little moments that psg were able to suddenly get an amazing 3-2 3-2 win away. I don't know. I was just blown away by the quality of the attacking play as much as I was appalled by the quality of the defensive play other than <laughs> Kaylor Navas. <laughs> so it was a thoroughly enjoyable 90 minutes of soccer. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was 
definitely the tie of the round. I'll tell my own personal story of what happened when I was watching this game. Um, so I had gotten vaccinated that afternoon. Everyone get vaccinated. It's the right thing to do. Corner kick PSA right now. The three of us telling you, go get vaccinated. I, I had gotten vaccinated. I, I got the Johnson & Johnson shot. So I was feeling a little woozy, feeling a little fatigued, you know, feeling a little lightheaded. And I decided to just kind of sit down and relax and turn this game on. I did not realize how lightheaded I was and like how kind of zonked I was and out of this world. It truly felt like I was transported to a mystical place when I was watching this game. It was (laughs) nuts. All the goals, like it felt like this game was taking place like a mile a minute. I don't know about you guys. This game was moving so fast. The pace was so quick, so frenetic. And there is a period where, like, you know, Mbappe goes through and he scores to make it 3-2 out of absolutely nothing. Neymar is pinging balls into precise spaces. Yasuo Kimmich is having another incredible game. I think Thomas Muller showed once again why he needs to be recalled into the Germany national team, scoring a great header in front of Yugi Lowe. And I think, you know, making a statement in that way. But then there was a period when it was, Mbappe had just made it 3-2. Bayern kick off again. They work it down the left-hand side with Coman. And Coman squares it to Chupamoting. Chupamoting is back as to goal. And he goes for a back heel. And it almost <laughs> comes off. And, like, I almost just collapsed. Like, if yeah. Chupamoting had, like, scored a back heel to make it 3-3 in a Champions League quarterfinal first leg, they would have had to, like, airlift me out of my house. Like it would have been, it would have been, soccer would have peaked. Soccer would have peaked. It would have been over. We would have had to cancel the rest of the tournament. There would be nothing that would come close to Chupamoting. Eric Maxim Chupamoting relegated with Stoke in 2018 with the likes of Darren Fletcher, Joe Allen, Charlie Adam, and Mame Diouf scoring a backfield goal in the Champions League to make it 3-3. Nick, I have, I have something to tell you. I don't think it was vaccine that was in that needle. (laughs) (laughs) It might might not have been. (laughs) But yeah, I thought this was, you know, personally for me, maybe I'm just a prisoner in the moment, but it has been a few days since then. This was the best game I've seen all season, Nathan. I had so much fun watching this game. And I think if you're Maurizio Pochettino, this is going to be, you know, even though PSG are struggling a bit in the league right now for some consistency, this game screamed Maurizio Pochettino because I think frequently under Thomas Tuchel, they had a lot of the tactical elements in place, but they didn't have the heart. They didn't have the desire. And I think those are like really sometimes, you know, lazy terms that are thrown around by pundits. But I think you could see in this game that these players were fighting for Pochettino. Pochettino had them set up in a way that they were able to defend in certain simple situations. And in other times, they were getting totally outplayed and they just had to use their wit to try and clear the ball out of the box and fight for this 3-2 result. And in the end, they did that against all odds because at the end there, they were so narrow. Byron had them boxed in. It looked like, you know, that gif of Jon Snow, like pulling out his sword in the onrushing, like the onrushing cavalry is like coming towards him. I just, I'm going to shut up now because I'm going for too long. But this game was so much fun and credit to Maurizio Pochettino and PSG because I think this is, the result that is going to really define uh, his first season in charge. 
I'm surprised you talked about Chuba Moting for like five minutes without mentioning the fact that one, he played for PSG last year, and two, had maybe the greatest miss of all time for PSG. Well, I think these um, are things that people know. I want to tell the people. I I want to. I want the people to experience what I feel. Fair enough. This has been the. This has been the Nick Gavinden. Uh, this has been the Nick Gavinden diatribe show, um, and I am very much here for it. I think you're right. I think. PSG maybe didn't go with a conventional tactic of sort of dropping back when they were under pressure and they were just leaving two or three feet forwards, even when Bayern Munich had, you know, nine guys surrounding the box. I think that's what made this game so stretched. Nick, I also wonder if the fact that the game was taking place like in the fog kind of helped that um, sort of mystical sensation that you were experiencing. Like it felt like it was a game that was taking place um, in the nether. You know, like <laughs> Caleb, you're a man of you're a man of, of who knows history very well. This felt like, you know, the snow falling down. It felt like an epic battle. It felt like the setting for like an epic historical war between two gigantic teams. No, yeah, no, it had it all. It sets mm-hmm. up a crazy return leg tomorrow um, in France. I wonder if PSG do you try to play a little bit more conservatively knowing that they have the one goal lead and the lead on away goals. So they have that little bit of a cushion, but it's kind of fun just watching two teams absolutely go for it. Um, And that was, I think Wednesday's game was an example of that, that we don't really see too, too often in a, in a very tactical world. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is what soccer should be. Like, this is what it should be. It should be like, especially knockout football like this. It should be two teams who throw caution to the wind and, you know, do everything they can to score goals and score more goals than the other team to try and win the match. And, you know, I'm all well, for that's it. huge. Yeah. I'm John Madden over here. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I love tactical duels and I think there were a lot of tactics going on in this game, you know, particularly from the likes of, you know, Thomas Muller and Kimmich and the Bayern players. I think PSG were brilliant in kind of letting Neymar patrol the middle area of the field. And I'm interested to, to hear what you think about this, Caleb. But I think as Neymar ages, and you know, it's been reported today by Fabrizio Romano that he's going to sign a new contract until 2026 to stay at PSG. If a center attacking mid-roll could become where we see Neymar see out the remainder of his career, because I thought he was just so brilliant in the middle of the park, kind of creating these singular moments for PSG to try and break. I mean, why not? I mean, it's not like Ligue provides much of a challenge to him. He only plays like 15 games in the French League each year. So as long as they have good defensive midfielders behind him, why not? I think it's, I just still think it's a little disappointing that he's going to finish out his career at PSG. Hey, if, if they win the Champions League this year, which is possible, maybe that's more okay. But I do think that it's a bit of a cop out. Yeah, and you know, for all we know, he'll end up in MLS or something for a little bit before his uh his time is is truly No, he goes uh, to he goes to the USL and plays for the Cosmos. Oh my god. <laughs> you gotta get that Pele comparison in somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I, honestly, I would not put it past him. Are the Cosmos still the Cosmos he, are still a thing. He right? already plays in a lesser league. I mean so. Cosmos Cosmos are a Nisa team. They're not a USL team, uh, but, oh, oh, Nisa, but the point Nisa. still stands. Didn't, yeah, I would, um, uh, totally off topic. But didn't Raul play for the Cosmos not too long ago? Yeah, 
I think that so. Checks out. That checks out. I think I, I also saw the Cosmos once in an airport. I forget what airport. It was probably JFK. Are you sure you were I sure you was an airport and not a space station? Got him. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about next? Uh let's move on to Premier League. Not too too much happened this weekend. We had I guess we already talked about Leeds Man City, so I think we can we can avoid that for now. Did we? Um yeah, kind of. Okay. I mean, we can talk about it more if you want. Kayla. No, what no, do, what do you think about Leeds Man City? We haven't <laughs> talked about Leeds uh, that much recently. So what have your... Because I think we all thought they were going to kind of fade away and they couldn't keep this up for the whole of the season. But it looks like they are not fading away and they are keeping up the murder ball for the entirety of the season. Yeah, I mean, in, in especially Leeds fashion, they have 14 wins, three draws, 14 losses. They have 49 goals for and 49 goals against. They are squarely in 10th place in the league um, on 45 points, which is exactly where they should be because they're not good enough to really deserve to be like that far up the top half of the table. But they're also like so superior to all the teams at the bottom half of the table. But they, you know, got this win against Manchester City with smash and grab soccer going down a man and scoring in the what is it 91st they scored they scored an extra time of both halves with their two shots in the entire game to beat manchester city and i just think that type of like shithousery is just really amusing (laughs) and only leeds could pull it off it's very bielsa it's it's very bielsa and very leeds i think in fairness i think city were kind of I don't think that City seem especially motivated or seemed especially motivated in that game. Um, you know, they were starting like Nathan Ake, Mendy started at left back. They had Zinchenko in midfield. Um, and it, 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 they rotated, I think, five players in from the Champions League game. But nonetheless, you'd expect City to have won. And they still did, you know, absolutely dominate every single, like 29 shots to two on the day. Uh, and they outpossessed them 71% to 29%. So credit to Leeds. I always love seeing City lose. Um, and, and Leeds are an easy team to sort of enjoy just on the surface um, because of how they play. So credit to them. And yeah, I would say Leeds have been a, a solidly mid-table team. And I think they have they are going to trend more like Wolves in terms of um, you know being solidly mid-table and less like Sheffield who sort of overachieved um, with a unique tactic and well, then clearly regressed this year. I think the interesting thing about Leeds, Nathan, is that Marcelo Bielsa has not signed the long-term contract past this summer. He signs year-to-year deals. So I think the real, if you're, if you're you know, upper-tier management of Leeds, I think the real preparation has to be setting this team up for when Bielsa eventually decides to not extend for another year and how you know, the development of the club is going to continue without Bielsa at the helm. I think they do have, you know, another year, maybe another two years of Marcelo Bielsa as Leeds manager. But I think after that, it's like, how do you carry on this upward momentum uh, without derailing it too much? Like bringing in another manager whose system might be a bit different. Maybe there are some similarities, but I don't think what they can do is just go from you know, Bielsa to a standard, you know, like English manager, right? Well, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, one group that they might look to is uh, Brentford and, and they, I think they could very well 
uh, look to poach someone like Thomas Frank, who has done so, so mm. well. Um, after I actually saw his, I saw one of his, his Bronby teams and uh, Brentford have like been very sort of Leeds esque in the championship over the last couple of years. And, and their group is very solid, but we can save that discussion for another time. I think the marquee tie of this last weekend in the Prem was Spurs United, the little Jose Mourinho derby. <laughs> well, we thought, I, I think early on in this game, I kind of thought Spurs were going to run away with it. It ended up being a, a fairly comfortable United win sealed off by a, a very typical uh, Mason Greenwood finish very, very late on. Uh, Caleb, what did you think of this one? Oh, Spurs. They never cease to disappoint very this true. year. No, I mean, just, first just of ever. all, first of all, the moment of controversy in this game came in the first half when Scott McTominay essentially like jabbed uh, Hoonman Son in the eye. And then a few passes later, Cavani had the ball in the back of the net. I think some people thought it was very harsh to call back the goal because of a foul in the buildup, but it was also very clearly a foul in the buildup, even though Son probably didn't need to lay on the ground for quite as long as he did. However, then a few minutes later, a great Tottenham team goal results in Lucas Mora flashing it across the net. And Son actually, you know, it wasn't a sweaty goal. It was actually like a very difficult finish, I thought, with his weak foot with Dean Henderson moving across the face of the goal. So they took the lead. But in the second half, Manchester United just showed that they have more quality, that they have more belief, and just, just more talent Overall, and I think Mason Greenwood, who's had a bit of an off season overall after his breakout year last year, has increasingly shown just some devilishly good quality with both the cross for Cavani's header and then just his amazing finish um, to cap off the game in the 96th. You know, especially after Spurs tore apart Manchester United in the first you know, match between them at the beginning of the year. I think this result says a lot more about how good the teams actually are. And unfortunately for Spurs, that is simply not very good. And I think Mourinho is in a very difficult spot in his career, or maybe more so Levy has a difficult choice to make considering it might bankrupt the club to get rid of the special one. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that this week started with Jose Mourinho throwing his players under the bus in a post-match press conference, you know, saying that, you know, it's the same manager, but different players in regards to Spurs' tough result last week. So coming into this game, I think obviously Man United are unbeaten or came into this game unbeaten in 22 away games in the Premier League. That streak has been extended by one, obviously, if you can do the, the quick maths there. You know, I think we give Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a lot of shit on this show. I think, you know, clearly he's not an elite caliber coach, you know, by, you know, the definitions that we think that, you know, aligns with. I think what he is clearly is a great A man manager. I think he knows how to get the best of of the players in this team, you know, particularly the ones that have come through Manchester United's academy. And I think he's done a good job with a lot of the more divisive personalities. I mean, I think about how positively... Paul Pogba has played in 2021. I think Pogba was probably the man of the match in this game. I think Pogba was excellent 
against Tottenham. I think he absolutely dominated Spurs' midfield. He is someone who probably, you know, you know, at the beginning of this season had an eye towards leaving the club. And now he looks like he's could potentially, you know, I could see him staying on and being part of the project with Ole. Uh, you know, Cavani has been in and out of the team this year. Cavani played exceptionally well in this game. I think Ole obviously knows how to get the best out of a striker. I think he's done really well with the pieces that he's been dealt. You know, Fred has been a much maligned player this season. Ole has stuck by him. Uh, stuck by Fred and McTominay, that midfield duo, and it's paid dividends for him. Fred obviously got the goal in this game. McTominay has played probably his best football this season of his career. So I think we give Ole a lot of crap, and it is like really just like leaving a bad taste in my mouth that I'm saying all of this. But I think you have to give credit for Manchester United really improving this season and taking a step forward in their development under uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's actually it's actually really scary to me. Um, because United didn't spend very big last summer. You know, I think they were a little bit more conservative. They didn't make that that very sort of United marquee signing that I thought they might, which means that this summer they're going to go out and spend like 150 to 200 million and get Jaden Sancho, who is just better on the wings than anyone they have currently. Or they're going to go out and get, you know, a better striker than Cavani, someone like Erling Holland. So... I'm very scared for the very real possibility that this United team are one to two major pieces away from becoming legitimate contenders and not contenders in the sense of being, you know, 11 points behind Man City. I'm talking about like running the Premier League from start to finish. Um, and and it's, I don't know, it's frightening. I, I was obviously more skeptical about Ole um, than... Actually, I think we were all pretty much on the same page. I don't think any of us really believed in him to get to this team to where they are now. Um, but yeah, very scary for the future. And I think even a bigger credit to to what he's doing is that he's changing, or he's, at least, you know, with him being there, he's forcing the structure of Manchester United to change. You know, they finally appointed a director of football and a technical director. Uh, that position is held by Darren Fletcher so I don't know how effective he's going to be in being a director of football maybe he is going to be great I think obviously he had a great eye for um you know being a player he was a talented player he read the game well I think he knows Manchester United very well too so I think you know if will he be a success who knows but that is something that I think United fans have been crying out for for a really long time and Ole was the person to sort of instigate that change to happen so I think there's clearly you know he's he's laying the bedwork for the future of his tenure at United. And there are whispers of a new contract coming for him at the end of the season. I could definitely see that happening, Caleb. Yeah, I don't have much more to add on Manchester United. Maybe we should do brief American soccer player watch and then finish up with (laughs) Lord Lingard uh, to wrap off our discussion of the Premier League. So obviously, after a dismal is probably the worst defeat Chelsea have seen in the past two or three years, 2-5 against West Bromwich Albion. They stormed back with a 4-1 victory over Crystal Palace that saw Christian Pulisic net a brace. Kai Havertz also put one on the board. And just all in all, a good day for 
the Londoners. Is Pulisic back? Yeah, I mean... He's I back mean, until his next hamstring injury. I mean... That's that's the thing, right? Is we have to really see if he can put together a spell of four weeks on the trot without suffering an injury of some kind. But is there anyone who attacks a ball at the near post better, or at the far post better than Christian Pulisic? That man comes in like a missile. Uh, that second goal, obviously, to complete his brace against Chris He is Crystal American, Ballard. after all. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to segue away from that, but yeah, I think I think yeah, this is obviously really good because Pulisic. There was obviously a lot of talk that he wasn't starting under the coach that gave him his breakthrough in Thomas Tuchel. I think Tuchel obviously still trusts Pulisic quite a bit, and I think the question is, can Pulisic repay that trust by staying fit and ready as best he can? You want to talk about D? We can talk about DK. We can talk about Daryl DK. I guess he's up to eight goals now on the year. Um, allegedly, Orlando City want twenty million for him, which I think is perfectly fair. Um, twenty million U.S. dollars, so like yes, fourteen or fifteen million pounds. Yeah, he's allegedly been linked to a club in the top six, but it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up going to a club like Everton. A cool thing about him as well is that he was a super draft selection. So, like the American collegiate system does produce quality players, and I think that's something that is very unique and interesting to to follow and um I'm I'm glad to see him having this kind of success. I mean this guy has acclimated so brilliantly to life in the championship. It's kind of unlike anything I've ever seen. Like it's so difficult to come into a league like the championship which is really rough and tumble halfway through the campaign and he's like single-handedly pushing Barnsley towards a promotion place. If he can get Barnsley promoted, I think is it's you know, it's on the cards, certainly now. That'd be an incredible story for Daryl DK, Barnsley, and U.S. soccer. And I think someone with his predatory finishing instincts is something that the U.S. has been calling out for for quite some time. So I could see a bright next couple months and next season for Daryl DK if he can continue this form. I can just imagine Jordan Morris watching Daryl DK tear it up right now and just being so jealous right now but it is true that he is just dominating in the English second division and it's really interesting to see where his next move is I I worry about him making a jump to a like top half Premier League team too quickly I hope he finds his way to the Premier League but I think we should you know definitely be in a bit of like a wait and see stage with his career because he did kind of come out of nowhere in a lot of ways like yes he was good in the mls but the championship is a significantly more difficult competition and i don't think we could have expected i don't think barnsley expected these types of performances from him caleb i think there's one man that you want to talk about before we segue to our last segment on this show and that man is the resurrected the refreshed the rebounded jay lings jesse lingard talk to us talk to us about why you wanted to, to bring up our old friend Lingard on this show. Sure. So, I mean, Jesse Lingard, not just by us, but by the soccer world more generally, has been a bit of, I don't know, everyone just makes fun of him because he's kind of been bad for a while now. And the excuse, right, is that he's, you know, still a, a young up-and-coming player. But the man is literally 28 on his way to 29. He is 
not a young man by any means, who had been sidelined at Manchester United because of the emergence and purchase of Bruno Fernandes. And it turns out that his friendship with Pogba was not enough to save his spot in the team. But since moving to West Ham United, who, you know, without him, were already having an amazing season, he now has eight goals and four assists in nine Premier League games. Those are simply astonishing numbers. And all the goals have been great. And he has the flicks and tricks. He is playing better than Bruno Fernandes in 2021. He is playing better than all the other England attacking midfielders we've been talking about this year, like Mason Mount, like Jack Grealish. This man has gone from essentially being out of the game of soccer to being, you know, almost certainly in Gareth Southgate's team for the Euros this summer. Comeback soccer player of the year. Very unlikely story. I don't know what to make of it at all, but I'm letting this sort of serendipitous moment happen. Well, I think it just shows you how much your surroundings can sometimes play into how well you perform on the field. This is someone that really went through a tumultuous time personally in his past couple years at Manchester United. I think there's been a lot of off-the-field stuff that we can kind of leave by the wayside, but acknowledge that that probably had an effect on him. I think with Lingard, I'm so happy for him, even though you know he's obviously ex-Manchester. I think this is someone who clearly enjoys just getting out there and playing. You can see like there's a smile on his face every time he's able to touch a blade of grass. The goals, Caleb, have been absolutely out of this world incredible. I think the the my pick of the lot was the goal away against Wolves where he just essentially dribbled through their entire team uh, to score. I think this guy is certainly going to be on the plane to the Euros. We know he's a very magnetic personality to the people in that camp. So I think that that's pretty much nailed on at this point. And I think there's not many stories like this in the world of soccer. You know, someone who looked dead and buried at a club, his career looked like it was pretty much, you know, coming to a premature conclusion and has moved somewhere else and has totally, you know, lit it on fire. And I think it's important that he went to a situation like West Ham, which David Moyes has, you know, cultivated a really stable structure for that club to succeed and they just added a piece in Lingard and they've just let him roll with it and I think if West Ham make the Champions League and Lingard gets to stay on with Moyes in that project it's going to be a huge boon for them next season some of the goals he scores are kind of reminiscent of the last great number 10 at West Ham um in Dimitri Payet it's always I I like a good underdog story and I think that Lingard is playing like an underdog, even if the majority of his uh, career, the majority of his time um, has been spent at United. And I think, yeah, I think, Nathan, it's it's interesting that you say that, because when this guy in, in Mourinho teams and in Van Hall, uh, not Van Hall, was, did he get it? This guy in like Mourinho, yeah, he did. This guy in Mourinho and Van Hall teams, like he wasn't scoring many goals, but he was scoring important goals. You know, I think about that goal in the FA Cup final, Obviously, there was the goal away at Arsenal. So this guy definitely has, you know, a clutch gene in his DNA. And I think he's not only showing that at West Ham, he's also showing that he can be a consistent contributor on the stats sheet if he is, you know, given some space and time to perform. Shall we now wrap things up on a slightly different note? All right. So uh, eight days ago now, uh, Valencia were taking on 
Cadiz in La Liga when at around the 30th minute mark, uh, Juan Cala, a player on Cadiz, allegedly called uh, <clears throat> Mukhtar Diakabi uh, Negro de Mierda, which basically means like you black piece of shit. Um, there is video and audio that supports Diakabi's uh, statement. Diakabi informed his team um, right there on the pitch and Valencia walked off. They eventually resumed the match, although Diakabi was subbed off um, at his request. Meanwhile, the RFEF has indemnified Juan Cala since then, and a lot of prominent Spain internationals have sort of come to Cala's defense. Uh, and it's another crappy incident of just blatant racism where it doesn't look like there's going to be any punishment uh, for the perpetrator. Yeah, wait, just to be clear, the RFEF, which is the Spanish Football Federation, still has an open investigation. However, La Liga had concluded their investigation that no evidence had been found that Juan Cala had insulted Mugtar Diakabi. Valencia, meanwhile, have, you know, despite this ruling, continued to support Diakabi. Um, and Cadiz, when asked to comment, just referred back to the statement sent out by La Liga. But I think it's another situation where, you know, it seems like a blatant act of racism occurred, but it's either very hard to corroborate and thus, you know, hard to punish. And and it reminds me of, what was it? Was it Antonio Rudiger when Chelsea played Spurs a few years ago, you know, heard, you know, racist insults from the crowd and, and they weren't able to corroborate it either. And I think there is an issue in soccer and in sports in general where even if there seems to be evidence, it can be difficult to actually, you know, have that result in suspensions. The only good example I can think of really is when Suarez was suspended for abusing uh, Patrice Evra. This was truly a disaster on all fronts for La Liga. And we'll get into that because I think La Liga has truly handled this in honestly just a disgraceful fashion. I think Cadiz should be ashamed of themselves for the way that they've handled this. And I think Juan Cala should absolutely be ashamed of himself for that truly just disgraceful press conference that he gave uh, trying to you know undermine the word of Diakabi. And it's just like, why would he lie about this? And this is what I truly don't understand. And this is going to be kind of an unfiltered thing for me because I'm so tired of seeing stuff like this. And it's just the thing that really got me was from watching this video. And this video is out there. You can find it on, on you know, if you're in the U.S., be in sports has the video of this of this incident happening. And I'm sure you can find it, you know, in multiple places, social media or whatever. But if you watch that video, you can see like just the body language of Diakabi change immediately when he hears what Kala has to say. And you can just see in his face, you know, how dehumanizing that experience was for him. Obviously, like, you know, props to, I think it was Gabriel Paulista who repeated what, like, Kala said to him and, like, kind of got in Kala's face and told him, like, it was unacceptable. And I think props to the entire Valencia team for walking off. But... I think for the, for La Liga to say like you know you have to keep playing the game or else you know you will be sanctioned, like that's not a way to deal with this situation. That's not a way to support the players that play in your league, and I think 
we've as soccer has gotten you know more and more about you know content and just producing game after game after game we've gotten away from you know these leagues actually like being supportive of the players on a personal level i'm not talking about you know umbrella initiatives like say no to racism and stuff like that i think you have to look at you know this footage needs to be looked at for a long time and the footage of you know diacabi's reaction truly how just like undermined dehumanized and trodden on he felt in that moment and also the way that he looked in the stands you know this is not something that he wants to do he doesn't he want he would wants to keep playing he doesn't want to be looking at his teammates playing playing the rest of this game while he's you know looking on dejected uh upset in the stands and obviously like looking on in the stands while Kala was still on the pitch after this you know Kala got subbed off at halftime which is also a disgrace the fact that he was able to continue so I think I'm just so sick and tired of situations like this and I'm so sick and tired of situations being handled in this way like by by bodies like La Liga who you know Javier Tebas came out this week and he said that in his opinion Diacabi misunderstood what Juan Kala was saying to him watch that video again do you think Diacabi misunderstood what Juan Kala was saying to him I don't know I'm I'm gonna stop because this is I'm gonna get fired up but this is just such a I mean it's such a horrible situation it's such like an indictment of where we where the game is right now and it's just Nathan it's a disgrace yeah and I think <clears throat> it definitely comes from the top down I think I was really disappointed to see um how many sort of prominent Spanish players from La Liga and elsewhere um, kind of showed their support for Juan Cala. I think that that's just totally misguided. I also think that the fact that Valencia couldn't abandon the game because they would be docked points is, I think that's a policy that has to change um, across the world, really, um, because it, it basically prevents teams from protesting effectively. Um, and it penalizes teams who are the recipients of racist abuse. So I think that is uh, another sort of institutional change that would be really easy to make um, if you are Tebas or if you are, you know, the English FA or, you know, whatever organizational group that you have. Because clearly um, there's no current incentive for players to to lie about this sort of stuff because there isn't even because there isn't even a punishment that gets doled out to the abusers. So, yeah. And I think it's just one of these, like we see it, we've seen it so frequently this season where after a game, a club has to put out a statement saying like, once again, one of our players has, you know, been on the back end of receiving uh, racist abuse on social media. And it's like, even when fans aren't in the ground, these players of color can't escape racism in their support it's woven into the fabric of the game that they play and the profession that they've chosen to take and even today like even today and yesterday you've seen posts like this yesterday was hunman san um and trent alexander arnold a few days back it's just so i mean it's become a daily occurrence that bodies of football teams clubs organizations are having to denounce racism on a daily basis and it's a thing where it's like how long until, you know, we are proactive in combating racism in soccer versus being reactive to combating racism in soccer? Because I think quite frequently we're just on the, the reactive end. And when you're on the reactive end, it's impossible. It's sometimes impossible to try and turn that around and, and create initiatives in order to be 
proactive in trying to combat these. Well, why don't we leave it there? This has been a, a longer episode, but we had a lot to talk about. Um, and we should be back with more. Maybe we get another uh, another world-class game out of this next set of Champions League fixtures as well. So hopefully there will be some resolution to some of, some of the things we talked about today. Um, and there should be uh, plenty of drama as this season gradually winds to a close in the next couple of weeks. Until next time, I have been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Vinden. And we will see you all next time. Mm-hmm.